Today, I'm very, very pleased to be able to introduce our speaker, um, Hugh Cheap, who is curator with the Museum of Scotland here in Edinburgh and is also the director of the Centre for Material Culture Research in Scotland. And Hugh is going to be talking about the, a neo-baroque strain in Scottish folk music. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Nana. Um, Stan I should say. Um, I approach this subject with uh, almost trepidation. Um, to say that I don't know what I'm speaking about might be unnecessarily rash, but um, I am really uh, flying a kite in this subject. But it's grown out of um, my own attempts to assemble what I like to call a national collection of a national instrument. This is the strap line that I've been advertising myself for the last few years. Um, because, um, as my first director in the National Museum pointed out, th there had never been and there wasn't a national collection of the national instrument. And that the bagpipes were poorly recorded in museum collections. And he advised me to look around and see what I could suggest. And the reason given, uh, I was not a curator of bagpipes or of music, I was a curator of agricultural engineering, so I'm not sure what the link was. Well, the link, of course, was that I happened to play the pipes. So I was sent off to look around at other collections, and this confirmed that uh, there was no, really no collection of the national instrument. And, uh, but one of the byproducts of my scrutinizing was that every collection I looked in, I couldn't, as um, a practicing piper, identify many of the instruments readily in the different museum collections. And what you see on the screen in front of you is a good example of an instrument that entirely mystified me when I was first asked to look at it and describe it. I did go to um, standard works when I discovered them, such as Anthony Baines's monograph, which is um, a catalogue raisonné of the Pitt Rivers Museum collection in Oxford. And very helpful it is too, because it puts the bagpipe in a European setting, and uh, it um, allowed me to see the broader context, because as a bog-standard piper in Scotland, I had a very limited view of what the bagpipe was. Principally, I thought it, it was very much the leading bagpipe in the world, that anything else paled into insignificance beside it, and there was a very strong, patriotic purpose in recognising how important the bagpipe was as a Scottish instrument. And indeed, we were always deliberately vague as to where it had been invented um, and how it had come here, or if we'd invented it, which I incline to say what well, we did. The music, the bagpipe we have today, we did invent it. This one on the screen is a much more complicated story, which I'm uh, getting onto. Now, I've wondered what to um, call this little... Um, attempt to open up this topic and um, I really wonder if I haven't hung myself by saying a neo-baroque strain in Scottish folk music. It's pretty dangerous ground. But um, in trying to summarise where this instrument comes from, where it takes us, uh, it's the only way I could really understand myself where these instruments originated what they have contributed to the Scottish uh, musical tradition and where we see them nowadays or how we see them or um, where they reside, as it were, in the tradition that we have it today. Of course, Scottish folk music, there's a very difficult concept 
even to, to uh, <coughs> define neatly and readily. And I was um, swithering about saying, well, this is really the orally transmitted music, the orally transmitted tradition in Scottish music. But, of course, Crawford's book on um, music and the lyric in Lowland Scotland points out very uh, carefully how literate the Scottish musical tradition was so that the idea of Scottish folk music being an orally tra transmitted sort of backwards tradition is, cannot be really sustained in Scotland. Um, I was intrigued uh, in having to review a book on, from the Hungarian Ethnographical Museum where there's good musical instrument collections to see that Bartok's definition of folk music was that it was defined, it defined itself by its techniques of improvisation, the key word being improvisation. And I thought that's a very interesting idea. I haven't taken it any further than that, but I just um, offer you that. And it's interesting for my purposes because Bartok and his uh, contemporary Kodai in Hungary were so influential in rescuing the bagpipe, rescuing pipe music and recording it and everything they did round about just before and just during the First World War um, has been crucial in the survival and thriving of the bagpipe, more or less in, in certainly in parts of Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe. Well, to go back to this complicated um, instrument, which I'm, of course, of avoiding saying anything too detailed about, um, but my starting point in trying to put together a collection was um, the available literature. And I would summarise this by saying that the narrative, the narrative of piping in Scotland, the history of piping in Scotland, as we received it, was narrowly based and didn't look much beyond the Great Highland Bagpipe, its origins, its where it flourished, how it flourished, and so forth. So it told the narrative of piping in Scotland told me nothing about these instruments. And yet what you have before you is a really sophisticated, beautifully made instrument, um, keys on it, um, on the keys on, on the regulator, on that, that drone in the drone cluster standing upright. This very um, interesting looking chanter, which is lying horizontally in front of you. <clears throat> so what we've got here is... Um, an instrument, this, the drones all in the common stock, um, a keyed so-called regulator providing um, a chordal accompaniment to the melody and to the drones themselves. And uh, just to mention, I won't come back to this, but as you see all the pictures, it's just something to bear in mind that the so-called regulator um, only sounds when you press the keys, so they, it has closed keys on it. So it, it was a way of augmenting the sound on the bagpipe as it's being played. So, what, to all intents and purposes, you have a very sophisticated instrument. It um, looks as though it produces more notes than the eight or nine notes of a Highland bagpipe. And in fact, the long chanter um, with its so-called foot joint was so shaped and built that enabled the instrument to be overblown. So, according to one source, which I'll come to later, this instrument could play two octaves. Um, by the technique of overblowing, and that is forcing more air into the bag and lifting the 
the, the reed, uh, lifting the, the, the sound and of, of, of the reed into, into a new, into an, an octave above. So, um, <coughs> I'll just bring us on one. <coughs> mm -hmm. Ah. Um, where to look for the origins of that instrument and just very much to summarise because it's quite a complicated story I think because I've had to work it out at least I believe I've had to work it out from first principles myself um, we look for its origins in the 17th century pastoral tradition in say in France where in the pursuance of these pastoral concepts of pastoral music, the, um, this genre of music, instruments were built by professional wind instrument makers, bagpipes were built of, of a high quality um, for playing either solo or ensemble for pastoral, for pastoral music performance. Now, this looks closer at that chanter that, uh, of, of, of a version of the, the chanter as in the first, the first instrument. Um, technically, musicologically, it's very, very interesting. And it's led me into all sorts of um, digressions of trying to explain this. Um, the nearest relation to it nowadays is the Union or Ilian pipe chanter on an Irish bagpipe. But the important point about the developed chanter is that it, um, it is a shorter piece and, for example, um, is really only as, as long as this from, from the, the neck down to, to this point here. And the modern chanters have lost this addition here, which is called the foot joint or bell. Now... To explain this instrument, because I asked various people, I asked Anthony Baines actually, because I was ex um, faced um, with having to explain these instruments, and I met the great Anthony Baines, it was a great moment for me, and I had saved up all my questions about pastoral pipes and these bagpipes for him, and um, met him at a conference here, and, and he was extremely affable and genial, but when I asked my, started to ask my question, he said, oh, I don't know anything about that, this was having written the monograph many years before, and I said, you know, but, but how you've written about it. He's, and he explained that he'd got it all from a particular individual, um, W.A. Cox, uh, a Northumbrian bagpiper. And so everything that is in Baines's monograph, according to Anthony Baines, about these instruments, derives from Cox. Now, I personally have reasons to think that Cox, although he began the research into this, and opened up the topic, then took it off into byways by that do not really uh, explain it. But anyway, back to the beginnings. Where does this instrument come from? This, this is just a detached chanter. It's one in our collections. Um, one of the points that I pursued over the years is um, that the collection of fragments was, important, was as important as the collection of complete instruments. Um, and I say this because the history, the material culture record of the bagpipe in Scotland is so uh, impoverished before 1800, before 1750, that any fragment 
really can tell us as much um, as, um, you know, say, a complete instrument from a later period. And this has been the case. So this, this was an item um, which we acquired in the late 1960s as a kind of job lot. Um, it did come out of a bagpipe maker's shop, and I had no idea how to explain it initially. But I now call it a pastoral pipe chanter, and I think its, its pedigree, as it were, is the Baroque oboe. And I believe its place of birth, so to speak, is London, um, late 17th, early 18th century. So that, that is, in summary, where I believe these instruments came from. Now, we are very short of source material. The, ironically, paradoxically, the history of piping is so difficult because it is a silent tradition. This may seem paradoxical, but go back beyond the recorded sound and the printed music, and, and you're going back to circa 1800 and before, the tradition is very, very silent. It is very difficult to find out uh, information that has not already been parboiled by other writers and, uh, and uh, sold up as something that it isn't. That's a very cynical and critical view, but that's uh, what I found over the years. But this is the frontispiece of a wonderful book uh, called The Treatise for the New or Pastoral Bagpipe, published in London, printed in London, about 1743-45, by somebody called John Gagan. On the title page, which faces this, um, it's, it's, I've, I've wondered over the years if, in fact, if this isn't meant to be a self-portrait of Gagan, but I think what it tells us is this, here's this player playing this chamber music, in, uh, chamber bagpipe, in this, neo, this classical and sylvan setting, and notice all the... the um, trimmings of, of, the, uh, of the 18th century there. He himself, as far distant from a kilted Highlander as anyone could be. And of course, the 1740s, um, there was every reason to distance the bagpipe, if you're interested in it, from Jacobitism and, um, and treachery and the, the action of the state against the Stuarts and their cause. So um, I see this as an image trying to get away from the imagery of the early 18th century. And at the time of the Blackwatch mutiny in London, 1742-3, um, what I call Grub Street artists in, in London were producing for wide distribution prints of Highlanders and Pipers. And of course, the stock image of a Highland Piper circulating in London at the time was a most exotic looking figure and nothing, nothing like this. So I see there being quite a, an important sort of political message in this picture as well as a, as a musical one. The book itself is this excursus on, on the bagpipe as he's playing it and he makes um, quite extravagant claims for it but nevertheless technically very interesting. He describes how it's capable of playing two octaves that it's capable of playing a chromatic scale and his, he has three finger charts which show that by cross-fingering and part-fingering and so forth and by overblowing, you can, you can achieve um, a scale of uh, sharps and flats and, and tones and semitones and so forth, quite unlike 
the Highland bagpipe of the day. The music of the book is not distinctively Irish or Scottish. It's really the music of, um, uh, of Britain in the early 18th century. There's a scattering of Scottish music, a scattering of so-called Irish music, what we would regard as Irish or Scottish. The definitions are less easy to sustain. And um, the, uh, the, the particular copy of this book that we have in the collections is, is a unique one and um, very, very special because it's got an additional manuscript section of about 15 pages which um, show, perhaps, how the book uh, belonged to a Scot who is, if you like, Scottified the repertoire of the book. It changes in the manuscript section and it also it uses information in the printed section and it sort of rewrites it in the manuscript section, which shows, puts, puts this very much in context. So it's a fascinating book. Also to note Gagan, John Gagan, a complicate, spelt in a complicated way, but we, we reckon that he was, it's pronounced Gagan. Um, evidently an Irishman in London. And of course, he wasn't the only person to be, of, of a musical bent to be coming to, to London. Um, at the same time, you have James Oswald of the Caledonian Pocket Companion, also just coming to London at the same time, and significantly publishing his music at the, with the same person who publishes Gagan's treatise, that is Simpson, John, James, John Simpson, who was um, a musical instrument maker, flute and oboe maker in London at the time. And um, at the bottom of the title page, it says how, um, you know, if you want to take up the pastoral bagpipe, just go to John Simpson and he'll give you one. So, you know, maybe this is where we, the whole story begins, that we, the, the, the chamber bagpipe is, as it were, born in London in this first quarter, first half of the 18th century. In, in terms of the real surviving instruments, here is one that survives in our collection, which um, is just a wonderfully rare piece um, because it has its bag on it, which may be original bag. Um, it has, as you see, this long chanter, this um, virtual sort of Baroque oboe type instrument, and it has its drones. And in this case, it's very um, sophisticated. You see, uh, or you, you appear to see uh, four drones here, uh, whatever this is, you might imagine it's a bass, you might imagine that's a tenor drone, and you see these two little treble drones. But what in fact it is, is this, uh, these two drones are linked at the top. You can just see a tiny little link there. And the, the reed is down here, the air goes up there, across here, down here, then up into the bass drone. In other words, giving the bass drone its full length, because it was soon discovered that... Um, if you, if you shortened the length of the bass drone somehow, you would have a more manageable instrument. Otherwise, to achieve this uh, low-pitch bass to go with a low-pitch chanter, your bass drone had to be extremely long to produce this long, long sounding length. So the instrument makers uh, devised this means of shortening the bass and um, producing a more compact instrument. And here is a beautiful, beautiful example, very early indeed, and who made it where, we don't know. This is another of the frustrations of studying um, these instruments. None of the early work is signed, is named. Um, the earliest named instruments are from the 1770s or 80s. 
So anything without a name is almost bound to be early. Well, how to explain what was the demand for these instruments? Okay, Gagan says all young gentlemen of a musical bent should be playing the bagpipes. And uh, so it, it's this notion that Gagan is writing for um, you know, sophisticated music making, for this pastoral tradition. Um, well, where does it emerge? And <clears throat> it emerges, curiously, in the, in the pastoral opera tradition. Now, this is very, very uh, shaky ground, but... Um, I have gone through a lot of musical material in the British Library and I cannot find specific mentions. But in this Hogarth drawing, <coughs> you have in the Beggar's Opera, um, if you like, this, um, uh, this kind of burlesque orchestra. And here is, is a pastoral bagpipe. Uh, almost, almost like Gagan in his frock coat, no hint of tartan. Or, or Scotland. So you've got this kind of burlesque um, opera, uh, the burlesque opera and this burlesque orchestra. Um, the, the other instruments are sort of, um, you know, are sort of rude instruments. Um, now, the music for the Vegas opera is um, very varied and appears to draw on two principal, well, on my, one principal source, which was the... Um, Durfee's Wit and Mirth collection. Oh, and also the Playford's collection. And in there, the music, of course, that, um, that John Gay has brought into the Beggar's Opera is really very strongly Scottish music. Uh, a large proportion of the music um, in, in, the, in the Beggar's Opera is, is Scottish music, or it's part of this neo-baroque tradition which introduced me to that dangerous word um, which is in my title whereby and you can all shoot me down on this but it just it, it seems it's emerged my, my explanation of where these things come from it just seems to have emerged that there is this neo-baroque strain of music which draws strongly on the folk tradition and on the bagpipes on the, bi on the piping tradition and of course on the fiddle, on the, on the violin, and string, stringed instruments. But, of course, I'm trying to ex particularly explain where the bagpipe comes from. So, and, and what about the neo-baroque? Why should it be doing this? Now, as I see it, the post-restoration London uh, uh, opens up back to entertainment and having a good time after the Commonwealth. And um, theatres start again, shows start again, and the musical scene in London appears to be swamped, more or less swamped, by the continental strain of, of the Baroque, the, particularly the Italianate. And then there seems to be a kickback against this, whereby in order to keep the kind of British end up, or according to taste, there has to be some counter to the Italian tradition. You know, Handel is getting all his stuff published, Goodo, um, the Italian composers, practitioners, teachers, they're all there in droves. And so what's the answer going to be? Well, the answer is, if you like, a kind of neo-Baroque uh, um, fashion based on, if you like, native traditions. And it seems to me that the quintessential way of expressing the native tradition in early, late 17th, early 18th century tradition, uh, England, and in turn Scotland and Ireland, is something like the bagpipe. But in order to make it usable, 
in a Baroque context, you have to have a better instrument than something picked off your passing Highlander or whatever, the kind of folk, the true folk instrument, whatever that was. And so the musical instrument makers, particularly in London, start making these instruments uh, for these performances. Another one where bagpipes appear, and I haven't been into the musical side of this yet, is um, Hudibras, Samuel Butler's um, satirical treatment of the Commonwealth and the Presbyterian, um, the, the Puritan era. And uh, so, again, you, you've a, a need for, if you like, rude instruments um, and the pastoral or uh, semi-pastoral tradition, and hence the bagpipe makes its appearance. Oh, this appears to be a musical instrument maker's workshop um, to see if we could spot a bagpipe in it, but no. Uh, but there are these, are, I think um, we have oboes and so forth there. So I was just looking to see if there was any information on... Um, turning and so forth. The person off on the left appears to be um, perhaps turning part of an instrument. Um, here you have, if you like, the, the, um, the other side of the coin. And this is meant to be in Scotland where you've got um, a harpsichord and strings. And um, yes, this, this r reminds me of in this neo-baroque period, if there is such a term, What's happening in Scotland? If Scottish, Scottish music was all the rage in London, what was happening in Scotland? And this picture reminds me that John Clark of Pennycook, from whom we learn a certain amount about music at this period, um, he, and he played strings and he played keyboard. Uh, he described his own native country as devoid of music. Devoid of music. You know, Scotland, no good. Um, so... Uh, and, and yet the, the kind of neo-Baroque tradition was drawing richly on Scotland. So you're getting this growing differentiation between, if you like, the folk and the classical, and I hesitate to use those words but to categorize. So, uh, um, um, but but it, it, it's, it's appearing at, the, at this time, unselfconsciously, I think. Well, um, just a bit more on these pastoral pipes. Um, they... I think that the making of these instruments is taken up, first of all in Edinburgh, then in Dublin, and in that, in that order. So I think the, the instrument begins in London, say moves north, and is taken up in Edinburgh. I wonder what the prompting is for it to start in Edinburgh. I suppose because Edinburgh might have thought, well, they're developing this bagpipe, but after all, we are the architects of, of the bagpipe, or, or you know, it's, it's a Scottish instrument. And so sophisticated instruments begin to be made up north. Now, I can't tell exactly where this instrument was made. It's, it's just a set of drones. If you, you'll see um, the groove in the, the stock here where the bag was tied on. But um, it's only the set of drones. And that's all we have. But it, it underlines my point about if you only have a fragment of an instrument, you can, in fact, learn a great deal from it. Um, one little development that has taken it on from the previous instrument is the looped bass. It really is a looped bass. It goes up here, down, and produces the bass drone there. So that's how you achieve this, the, the flat pitch and the very long bass. In this case, it's got a third drone, a little treble drone. So the instrument is improving and sort of augmenting its sound. Now, who made this, I don't know, but I've decided to make a guess that it was made by an instrument maker in Edinburgh called Hugh Robertson and that he, it was, might have been made about 
1770 or 1780. I believe there's an instrument like it in the um, Balfour collection in the, the Pit Rivers Museum, but I've been asking for pictures of it for a, a number of years, and so I've got to go there. Um, now, this is really to take us into more of an Irish instrument. This might well have been made in Scotland, but it's, it's, it's beginning to turn into the, the, um, the ancestor of the modern Irish bagpipe. It's, it's, um, for example, it's, it has a regulator added onto it here, and the, and the chanter itself is now shortened and, and has keys. So it's, a, it's achieving its chromatic scale, but it's not having to be overblown because um, it, it basically makes the instrument unstable if you're overblowing it, so um, potentially unstable. And so it's easier to have th this sort of te technique. Um, in fact, they did develop a sort of, <laughs> having said that it, it's not overblown, that is actually incorrect, because um, this short chanter was what's called st stopped on the knee, that you played sitting down, and you actually jammed it on your knee to, to force the, um, the, the scale above the octave. So, but it, it meant that you didn't have to squeeze a lot harder, which made the instrument unstable otherwise. So there is a technique for overblowing, and this probably um, might instrument might achieve two octaves. And just to spread the story a bit, this um, is uh, a plan in our collections and the significant thing about this is it's, um, if you like, it's a pastoral or so-called union pipe, but it's made in England. And it just shows how um, there was equally um, an English tradition of these bagpipes, which just makes it more complicated to work out what's happening when and, and where. But there definitely was. And in fact, some, there are some Irish references to these bagpipes, which make it clear that some of these early instruments were not Irish bagpipes, but were English bagpipes. So um, this, this is a, although it's late, 1820s, um, it does bear out the point that these instruments were made and played in, in uh, England. Well, in terms of what happens in Scotland and the fact that I've rather suggested that the tradition moves north and, and the making of these instruments is taken up in Scotland. And I think one of the, um, well, just to regress a moment, the, I think what happens is the root withers of, the, of this tradition in London um, that come the 1750s and 60s, the sort of Dr. Thomas Arne, the more patriotic tradition takes over and there is, a, there is less of an interest for Scottish music and, uh, for, and Scottish folk music then. It rather withers at the time, but it's left still being made uh, the instruments are being made in Edinburgh, and what seems to give it a real boost in the second half of the 18th century is the arrival of the poems of Ossian and the fact that um, the Ossian so-called poetry uh, was ultimately set to music. It comes out in all sorts of forms, but um, it was set to music, and there are kind of Ossian <coughs> librettos, and one of the most popular and well-known of these was so-called Oscar and Malvina. And I've studied this at great length. It's a very exciting piece. I'm surprised it's not on in the festival. But there we are, Oscar and Malvina. And um, here is um, one of these uh, 
the Pipers playing in Oscar and Malvina. And in the first, the early editions uh, of the uh, scores for Oscar and Malvina, they are scored for bagpipe. And um, you see very clearly then the role of, 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 the, of the chamber bagpipe. By this time, it's called the Union Pipe. That again is uh, quite a difficult um, point to give definition to. Where does this term union appear and what does it mean and, and how does it come about? Well, my own version of this is that possibly the term certainly seems to appear in Ireland. It does not refer to the act of union or anything like this, but it is a term uh, produced by the makers of bagpipes in Dublin to, um, and it's a Gaelic term, um, and it's the Gaelic equivalent of the word union in terms of consonance or sound, that the bringing together of sound um, with the drones and regulator or regulators and chanter and so forth, the fact that you've got an instrument with four reeds to tune, set up and so forth is very, very difficult in itself. So that uh, the, the, the acme of, of achievement of this instrument is, is creating a union of sounds. And it so happens that in Gaelic, the word union, union is an old bardic uh, metric term, very well um, seated, as it were, in, in Gaelic tradition in Scotland and Ireland. And I just wonder if the term doesn't creep in at that point when the, when the instrument, when the so-called pastoral pipe begins to be made in Dublin. In the long-term history of this, the, the pipe, this type of instrument is eventually taken over in Ireland and becomes what we now refer to as, as the Ulian pipe. Um, this in itself is a rather suspect term. It appears in the, um, uh, it appears in the late 19th, early 20th century and appears and, and, and I think was, was adopted in order to distance the tradition uh, from, from England or Scotland or from Britain in a big way um, because the term union at the end of the 19th century had itself become uh, an unacceptable and detested term for all sorts of political reasons. And with the Gaelic League um, flourishing, um, the Gaelic language came up with the term Ilian pipe for this meaning an elbow pipe. Well, by this time, of course, in, even in Ireland, the tradition had flourished and then virtually died, but it, it's hung on and it now flourishes. But you see this little portrait of Mr. Colclough. This is somebody called Henry Colclough, who actually produced a little treatise um, on the Union Pipe, which um, is a very rare item. There's only about, I believe, only three copies survive. And the one I've seen is, is missing its title page and so forth. But it's very, very revealing because, of course, he describes a, um, a handbook, um, a tutor book for an instrument which has developed from the pastoral pipe of Gagan's time into something more sophisticated because he has to explain how the regulators work and so forth. And he has a more or less fully developed bagpipe with two or three regulators because the instrument was growing and growing. And, of course, he's... He's dressed, his, his manner of dress is deeply significant because he's um, involved in chamber or, or orchestral performance and um, is, is dressed accordingly. And uh, as far as we know, he was another of these performers on the London stage in the great Oscar and Malvina show. Um, 
Edinburgh. This is an Edinburgh-made instrument and I, uh, by Hugh Robertson of Edinburgh. Very, very prolific maker in the last second half of the 18th century and one of the first makers to mark his instruments. So suddenly we've got some benchmarks against which to, to explain these instruments. It went off in different directions. The top, um, the top section here is a, is a drone uh, or set of drones all um, built into a single chamber um, rather on the French musettes um, and earlier Baroque instrument tradition. And these were... Um, this was uh, part of the work of a man, a Scot, Malcolm McGregor, again working in London, working for a wider market and producing very inventive, sophisticated instruments. And yet another uh, more sophisticated, growingly sophisticated. This is a presentation instrument. This is um, rather nicely shows the universality within the British Isles of this of this. Um, this pastoral, latter-day pastoral tradition. This is a, um, a union pipe, so-called. Um, it looks to modernize entirely an Irish bagpipe, but it was made by one of the English makers in Newcastle, Robert Reed, um, and it was presented to a Scot. So it's an Irish bagpipe made in England, presented to a Scot, a man, Robert Miller, who was a great performer and teacher in the early 19th century. Where else to find these instruments? It's so difficult to get contemporary evidence. And this um, is a difficult piece of evidence, but um, because it's a retrospective portrait, it's a section of the portrait showing Robert Burns um, being uh, inaugurated in the Canongate Kilwinning uh, Masonic Lodge here at the bottom of the Canongate. And it's, there's a lovely little orchestra um, gallery behind, and in it you have this lovely lineup of the pastoral pipes on your left and um, fiddle and cello. And this is really um, rather neatly summarizes, if you like, the literate quality of Scottish folk music in the late 18th century. We're meant to be looking at 1786. And if you like, music making in polite society in Edinburgh and the playing of of, of, of the folk music as, as opposed to perhaps of the classical music. Out in the streets, um, here you have uh, a union pipe, pastoral pipe being played for dancing, a, uh, a uh, picture by the artist uh, Geeky, Walter Geeky, uh, full of life and uh, meaning. This is a beautifully observed portrait. Um, in recent years, I've learned to play the bellows pipes and it is very, very curious that the posture of this person playing is entirely typical of the posture of when you're playing these pipes. You're drawn into the sound that you're creating. And I'm absolutely fascinated the way he's put his feet together in that way. And it's almost you're pushing one foot above the other in order to bring the point of the chanter close to your knee, ready for if you, if you want to leap an octave. So it's, it's not just a cartoon, it's a beautifully observed scene. A Wilkie showing the pastoral pipes. Um, this is almost certainly a long chanter bagpipe. It, it hasn't developed the short chanter of the Union Pipes and Ilian Pipes of Ireland. And it just brings me on to my sort of final points that the, I mentioned that the tradition withered in London and um, 
survived or, or was regenerated with the Ossian phenomenon, um, survived in Scotland, survived in Ireland. It all begins to die out everywhere, this sort of neo-Baroque tradition, um, by the 1830s or 40s. Um, there are one or two hangers-on. This man, a man, uh, Willie Purvis, Billy Purvis, was a great entertainer, one of these versatile go-about people who could do anything anywhere. And uh, he would, for example, there is uh, an account of him playing at the Glasgow Fair in the 1820s where he, um, he tries piping and that's not acceptable. So he tries juggling, that's not acceptable. Then he goes away and gets blind drunk and gives up altogether. But there's rather good little... Uh, stories about him. So he's, he's rather the end of the tradition. And there, we have collected, and I find it very difficult to explain these instruments, but this, this is one, and that is one, and that is one, and that's my final, um, my final slide. But what those last three show are sophisticated, beautifully made pastoral pipes right out of the original neo-baroque stable. Um, of the early 18th century, but being made in Scotland, still in the 1820s and 30s, just at the point when the Highland bagpipe was beginning to take over due to other causes, other, if you like, other uh, musicological movements. But this pastoral pipe seems to have a final, uh, a, a final tune or two in Scotland in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. And curiously, they might well have been made frustratingly not named, we don't know for certain, but they might well have been made in Aberdeen. There appears to be um, a, a sale, if you like, of two or three makers of bagpipes in Aberdeen in the northeast. And that also, it's so interesting to speculate why this happens in the northeast. Why is the northeast distinct in some way? It was distinct in the 17th century, distinct in the 18th century in different ways. And it seems to key into the fact that there's a very lively uh, musical society in Aberdeen, but it, it, it appears later than in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and it continues to flourish for later. And I reckon that these instruments, um, again, it's frustratingly difficult to find out because the details are so sparse, but I think that these instruments appear, particularly where there are musical societies and where there is musical performance which calls for, if you like, some evocation of the pastoral tradition. So that's, that's my story. It's very much work in progress. My immediate task is to begin to build up some sense of repertoire, a bit more than I've got already. And um, we have two or three manuscripts collections in Scotland. No, three or four manuscript collections in Scotland which are associated with the pastoral bagpipe. And um, what I want to do is finish... I've gone through two of them, go through the other three and see what's common between them all, build up some sense of repertoire for these instruments, since you, you surely you can't have a bagpipe that is so silent. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Hugh. Uh, we have got, for an hour or so, for... Um, uh, Questions, and I'm asked to present you with this microphone and help you ask a question. This is entirely because we are recording it, it's not because we can't hear you. Hello. Yes. Uh, does anybody play these pipes today, this kind of pipe? Well, there's been a tremendous revival of bellows piping in Scotland since really 1981 82, but 
um, so far there are not many takers for the so-called pastoral pipe. Um, they're, they're almost, they've been too complicated to read up, too complicated to work, and it may, that may point to the reason that they faded originally. Too, so I, hadn't, I have heard them played, but there's very few players of it. But of course the repertoire is there in other, in other areas. I'm interested in this question of overblowing. Uh, if one tried to do that on the Great Highland Bank, mm. the first thing you'd do would be to stop all the drone reads yeah, yeah. with the extra pressure. How did they overcome that? Do you know? Yes. The, um, the reed setup is entirely different in these pipes. Very low pitch, really quite a soft sound. You know, it was sound... It, it was sophistication, I dare say, at the expense of sound. You know, nowadays we expect a bagpipe to be very loud. Expectation wasn't for a particularly loud instrument then. It was more this sort of bringing together of different sounds. So you had long reeds, quite um, generous sound chambers in them. Um, they, it was possible to overblow, to, to bring more pressure to bear with bellows without closing off the reeds. But I think it was a dodgy business. I, I don't think it was. I don't think it was that easy. Yeah, yeah. This this may be a, a rather ignorant question because I'm not a piper and don't understand the the, the intricacies of the pipes. But uh, I'm wondering what the relation with the pastoral pipes is to the stock and horn, which is popular yeah. in Scotland even even till as far as I'm aware until you know 1780s and 90s and yeah. Burns had one himself and it was just yeah. some of the illustrations were reminding me where does it sit in in, con in connection with pastoral pipes? Not really at all. At all, apart it's from completely fact, different thing. You know, it's the it. It's so interesting where it comes to to our notice through say Burns. It really is through Burns. I think there's. No, well, there's one or two, obviously, there's one or two references to before then. Um, but that is, if you like, the, the older tradition, pastoral, the, the, the older piping tradition just surviving. Um, and it's, you know, it's not kind of rebuilt in London like these bagpipes are. It's, if, if, I mean, if it had been plucked, say, from the Highlands to perform something in this pastoral tradition in the late 17th, 18th century, um, you know, it would have developed into, no doubt, a sort of... Uh, fine-looking oboe-type instrument blown straight in the mouth. But somehow it gets bypassed. And how you explain that, I don't know. It dies out, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. At that time, the turn of the century, yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We, we, um, we have Burns's own stock and horn, this, this bone piece that he describes in his letter to, um, to George Thompson. And... Um, uh, it's slightly doubtful if it would have ever played, I must say. <laughs> um, when I first saw it, I was absolutely over the moon. That this had, it turned up in, a, in, in Sotheby's in London some years ago. But the more I look at it, the more doubtful I am about what it really is. And I think it really is a piece of mutton bone, as he describes it. <laughs> uh, what sort of pitch did these instruments play at? And have you ever used... Uh, you know, a uh, estimation of, of pitch as a way of, um, you know, possibly uh, dating or, you know, uh, putting a, a place on these instruments? That is the sort of question that I was sort of dreading. <laughs> because, no, don't worry. Um, the, 
one of the problems I have from a museum point of view is categorizing these instruments and uh, requires you really to test them for pitch and see where they lie. And <clears throat> I haven't yet found with bagpipes a satisfactory mean of, means of doing this, apart from the, the worst sort of guesswork, because of the need to read up these things and to blow them, um, and thereby introduce humidity into them and so forth. So this is a real, this is a real problem. But, um, I mean, I've just said rather vaguely that they are kind of low-pitch instruments. They, they, the, um, the first treatise, the Gagan's treatise, describes the, um, well, the, the way the finger chart is made out, it goes from middle C up the way. Um, but that the tonic note is D, uh, which, which is so interesting because it seems to bring it into that kind of folk tradition of where you have a note below the octave, as we do on the bagpipes. Um, so beyond that, I can't, I'm, not, I'm afraid I'm not very good on this. But um, what we do find in the collections, and, and to say this is rather guesswork, is that um, there's a tremendous variety of pitches in all these bagpipes. And now we think of the Highland bagpipe as, as being the kind of standard instrument with its standard pitch, which of course is um, somewhere around B flat. Um, but what you find in this museum collection is that they are pitched all over the place. And part of the complication of the drones, the sophistication of the drones, was to be able to play different tunes in different pitches and, and swap your drone system to play, say, in A or D or C or whatever or E. So sorry, that's a. I, I, I represent my coming to this as a as a mere piper that I'm actually musically illiterate, because in the old days we we were rarely taught music. You were just told what to do, and if you did it wrong, you were whacked over the fingers. So um, that's how you learned, and and of course piping was a little bit kind of isolated. So it wasn't our teachers did not relate it to anything else. They didn't have to. So I am a classic musical illiterate. Uh, Hugh, can I uh, ask a question which is really about um, the death of the instrument in London, but obviously versions of Scottish music mm. continue as polite music in London. Yeah. And the one thing it struck me as slightly interesting, I say entirely out of ignorance, um, is bagpipes associated with Ossian when yeah. one would rather think of the harp yeah. and Ossian yeah. and a musical instrument moving into a female kind yeah. of performance Quite. sphere. Quite. Um, is that in fact what happens, that, that it becomes feminized, it goes to a different kind of instrument that is an instrument that women would play, women would not conventionally be puffing or yeah. doing the kind of physical yeah. movement associated yeah. with the bagpipe? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, a very interesting question. I think that's highly relevant for looking at this, the, the broader Ossianic tradition. I'm not entirely sure, but um, I think one or two of the scores that I looked at in the British Library, I think there were sort of little harp, um, harp sections, if you like, but they tended to be sort of rather isolated in the, the whole um, delivery, whereas the pipes were drawn into, into this sort of orchestral run of the thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, say, allegro movements, where the thing kind of bounced off into mm. pipe music. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure. But, I mean, there may be... Um, it's difficult to think of the harp 
taking on its quite its sort of feminine role by then. You know, when you've still got the the, the harp festival in Ireland, which you know it's it's an entirely male thing. The harp tradition in Scotland is of uh, the um, professional harpists in the Highlands, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it isn't until the class art society and so was revived, it, or or maybe in the English orchestral tradition, the Welsh harp, I'm mm -hmm. not sure, mm -hmm. that it become it goes in that direction. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right about the pipes, that there was, um, it was not really uh, terribly acceptable for, for women to, to, to play the pipes because of the sort of distortion that it caused and yes. in, in your face and features. Yes, yeah. Other questions? Um, sorry, a, a question from kind of complete ignorance, really. Um, but so there was a kind of separate Highland bagpipe at this time as well, or does that is that something that emerges later? And well, I, the delicious thing is that I can't be absolutely categorical about this, but I think probably there was when I, I mentioned the Grub Street artist showing Highland pipers at the time of the you know the Jacobite era, and um, there you have kilted pipers playing a bigger instrument. But the really intriguing or frustrating aspect of that is that those. Um, Grub Street artists who produce uh, these pictures working in London, they use as their source, their visual source, um, genre pictures from the continent. So the information, the technical, potentially technical information we have in graphics for the Highland Bagpipe at this time is entirely bogus. Because what you've got is, um, specifically, they are all these Highland Pipers are carrying something in instrumental terms which is adopted from a picture by a Dutch artist called Blomert of the early 17th century. And it so happened that this very successful genre picture was made into print form, circulated throughout Europe, and influences every artist who decides to paint a bagpipe. So you find the Blomert template or exemplar in all sorts of forms, in all different parts of Europe. It's most extraordinary. But of course, I was prompted to, do so, to find out about this when um, uh, there was a big sale in Christie's many years ago. A lovely plate came up with a Chinese picture on it with a, with a piper. And several people wrote to me and said, you know, what's this picture of a Highland piper? You know, you... And, of course, I recognized it as part of this Blomer tradition. And it's very complicated. So we don't, but certainly there was a separate Highland bagpipe. And it was a bigger instrument and so forth. But very little survives from before about 1750 to tell us exactly what it was like. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It is half past and um, we have got to let people go. Mm. So can I say thank you very much to mm. Hugh for what I think was an absolutely fascinating talk, which I think <laughs> the audience has enjoyed today. So thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.